Well, church, we're continuing on in our series in Acts. Uh, before we do, I just, man, those videos were exciting. And something, so, something that you might not know that really jumped out to me and I appreciated was Elijah getting baptized there. Um, his whole family got baptized the last time we did the service. And he said, I don't want to. And I'm glad. He said, I, I got to think about this if this is really my faith. And, and he came forward later and said, you know what? Jesus is my Savior. I want to be baptized. And I just love seeing that in his heart. And, uh, and just FYI, we are still in Assemblies of God Church. He just wanted to make sure you knew that too. But uh, we are continuing in our series. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. Church, um, at the end, we're going to be doing our connection cards. Let us know what we can be praying with you about. I want to tell you that this week was pretty unprecedented. And the number of things that I've seen our church body walk through as individuals. Um, the Smith family, Gordon and Vera, their grandson, uh, Corey, passed away very unexpectedly last week. Um, we have other people in our church who have direct family that have gone into hospice care. Um, uh, grandparents that have passed away very unexpectedly. We've had families that have ha- experienced tremendous loss that was uh, unexpected. So I just ask you, church, that we be in prayer. for. We don't know necessarily all the things that are going on, but I ask that you be in prayer for those things as we, uh, we lift up the body of Christ. That we, uh, we've talked before that when one part of the body suffers, we all hurt together. Um, we celebrate together and we hurt together. And so let's lift them up in prayer and be there for our brothers and sisters. All right, let's jump into the word this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be primarily in Acts 13 or 11, 13, and 17, okay? So those are going to be kind of the main sections of Scripture we're going to be in today. Um, We're talking, we're going through the book of Acts here, and last week we talked about how Paul obeyed God's plan. Remember, he had a plan of staying in Jerusalem. He said, you know, God, this is where I have my footprint. I've, I've done a lot of things here. I think this is where I'm supposed to be. And God said, I've got different plans. I'm going to send you. And so he obeyed that, and he left Jerusalem because... uh, uh, we know that God's plans uh, are the plans that we should seek and follow. If he leads us, we are to obey. And so when we read the book of Acts in Paul's life, sometimes I think I read it. And because it happens in such a short section of the Bible, you feel like it's bang, 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 right? Paul like accepts Christ, you know, after he's on the road to uh, Damascus. And, uh, and, and then uh, when, when he receives Jesus, he's like, well, I gotta, I gotta go. And he packs a bag and he grabs uh, Barnabas or Silas and they take off on their missionary journey and and, and then they go off and they're sailing around and they're off to their many adventures kind of like hobbits or something that's um, that's not exactly the how how things happen though so um, what what actually occurs is Paul leaves Jerusalem and he went to Cilicia and Tarsus which is where he was originally from this little corner of the world that's uh, um, kind of down in the corner of southeastern Turkey and uh, and he lived there for not just a couple weeks or a couple months, he lived there for 10 years. The next 10 years, he'd live in this area. He was involved with the church and things like that, but for 10 years. Uh, and yet, he had this call of God in his life. And I think that had to be kind of a time where he had to grow in his patience. Um, but let me encourage you, be patient with God's timing and God's plan. A decade of waiting for God before Paul even set out on his first, mis- first missionary journey. Um, I think we have uh, microwave faith in today's world. 
Um, we like to kind of just, you know, ding, fries are done. You know, like, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do this, God. But sometimes God wants to put us in his crock pot of preparation. Sometimes there's a time where we just need to kind of prepare and God's, God's tenderizing our hearts and, and working through us. And so, um, I, but I like the big digital readout of God's timing. You know, how many seconds left, God, are we talking about till, till we get things moving here? But Paul had to be patient. Ten years he waited in Tarsus and Cilicia for, for what was next. And so 10 years go by and we go to the book or the chapter 11 of Acts. And so the church of Jerusalem, they hear about the gospel is beginning to spread among the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were people of non-Jewish heritage. And even for the church at the time, that was kind of shocking because they believed that the gospel was specifically primarily for Jewish people. But they heard that Gentiles were starting to believe in God. And so they wanted to hear about what was going on. So in verse 22 of Acts 11, it says this, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. And Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So, Barnabas goes to Antioch where he hears this new movement is going on with the believers and the the Gentiles are starting to come to Christ and and he wants to investigate that. And so that, again, this is also right on that border, right along the modern lines of Turkey and Syria. You look about what, what all's been going on in the last years on that border and, and what's been happening there, how much biblical history has occurred here. And so he goes to this, this area of Antioch and he goes and he finds Paul and he brings him to Antioch there. And, uh, and they're based there for about a year and they're teaching and they're working in the church. And then something happens. We're going to jump ahead now to Acts 13. If you want to turn over in your Bibles to Acts 13, verse 1, it says this. Among the prophets and teachers of the church in Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaen, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and they sent them on their way. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they get commissioned for their first missionary journey. But as I was reading through the names of the people that did this commissioning, um, one name really caught my attention in this list as I was studying. I, I, I was like, I've got to look into this further. And that name that jumped out to me was Manaen. I don't know if you read that, but it said this. He was the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. Herod was one wicked dude. Uh, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. You know Herod the Great was the one that tried to hunt down Jesus, right? When Jesus was born and he initiated the the genocide of all the children uh, in Bethlehem trying to exterminate Jesus and the person that would be the threat to his throne. That was the Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was his son. Herod Antipas is the Herod who was the guy that divorced his first wife so that he could marry the wife of his half-brother. That's kind of messed up. Right? Herod Antipas is the same Herod who ordered the strangulation of his own two sons in 7 BC because he was afraid of them vying for his throne. 
had his own two sons executed by strangulation. It was Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist arrested, put in a dungeon, and then eventually beheaded so that he could have his head delivered to his stepdaughter on a platter. It was Herod Antipas that was involved with Jesus' uh, 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 trial before his execution. Herod, Herod was the personification of evil. I mean, if you were to look up dysfunctional family in the dictionary, you would see a picture of the Herod family. This family was messed up. This was one twisted up family. They were messed up people. And, and in his inner circle, Acts says that his childhood friend and companion was Manaim. Um, the Greek for childhood companion, I looked it up, means nourished with one. So that means from when they were nursing babies, that since they were little guys, they grew up in the same household together. And somehow from this environment, from this uh, situation, we wouldn't exactly say he's got the pedigree, but he became one of the pillars in the early church. Wow. This guy that was in the household of, of Herod, who was in this, in this area of cruelty, who had these relationships that were broken. And, and we don't know how he came to salvation, where he heard the good news. I was wondering about it. I, wondered, I wonder if he heard about this when uh, John the Baptist was in prison. Or I wonder if he heard about Jesus or, or found salvation when Jesus was arrested and, and brought to trial there in front of Herod. Or maybe it was during uh, when, when uh, Pentecost happened and Peter preached before the multitude in Jerusalem. Maybe he heard and responded then. We don't know. There's no other moment in scripture where he's mentioned. But, but he received the gospel. And what we do know is no matter what point in your story, no matter what your background is, it doesn't matter how twisted your background is, how broken and dysfunctional your background is, you are never too far gone for God to reach you. You are never too far gone. Your history does not have to define your future. It doesn't matter who you ran with, or maybe you were the ringleader of that group that you were running with. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. God can still reach you. And maybe you say, okay, maybe God can save me, but there's no way he could actually use me. Like maybe God's like, okay, I'll, I'll let you go to heaven because you're sorry. But he wouldn't actually use me for anything he wants. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not that kind of person. Let me tell you, your past does not disqualify you from being used by God. Manaen was one of the prophets and teachers of the church in Antioch. He was one of the ones that commissioned and sent Paul and Barnabas. You see, with, God, with our God, a great future doesn't require a great past. You don't have to look back and say, well, here's, you know, all the things I've done right, so thus God can use me. God doesn't, God, God is the one who qualifies, not our past. And I will also say this, there may be uh, those of you who've been praying for a long time for someone and you're starting to wonder if it's ever going to happen. You feel like, man, they are too far gone. They are not too far gone. God hasn't given up on them and neither should we. If God hasn't given up on them, neither should we. They're not too far gone for God to reach. So these leaders of the church in Antioch, they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they send them off on their first missionary journey. And it's a relatively short trip compared to the next three. I think he kind of got more courageous as he went out. So his first trip, he just went to, uh, if we go to that next slide, his first trip, he went to uh, the island of Cyprus and then he went back up into uh, modern day Turkey into the area of Galatia. He visited the church in Antioch and Derby and into those areas. And, uh, and they went and visited these churches and it was a great time. Uh, this area, by the way, was called Asia Minor. I don't think we'd necessarily call it that now. Um, but you're kind of in that Silk Road area, though, where you get over into Asia. And so they were in this area of Asia Minor traveling around and... Uh, 
And then they come back, and after about a year later, they went on a longer trip. And this longer trip, if you go to the next slide, um, they went all the way up through Galatia, and then they traveled up into Greece. And they went to Philippi, and we have the book of Philippians, right? And down into Thessalonica, which we get Thessalonians, exactly. Berea, which we don't have a book of Berea, but that's where the Bereans were at, where, where uh, Paul gave them, he, he congratulated them on, on studying the scriptures for making sure everything he said was truthful, right? And then he went down to Athens and then on to Corinth, where we get, of course, the book of Corinthians, and those people needed a lot of books, okay? Um, but uh, it's in Athens we're going to pause here. In Acts chapter 17. So Acts 17, it says this starting in verse 16. If you'll turn your Bibles there or scroll there if you're on your phone. Starting in verse 16, it says this. While Paul was, vi- while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picking up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. They were the hipsters of the day, okay? They were... They were up, up with the, the current things. And so, but Athens was known historically, even at that time, for great thinkers. 400 years before, academics like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and Pythagoras, they, or Pythagoras, he came up with the Pythagorean theorem. Pythagoras uh, would, would present their philosophies, right? They have these philosophies where they consider reason and observation and talk about what the examined life was and, and all these things. They were deep thinkers with philosophy and all these things. And, and the religion and the art and the architecture and the schools of thought within Greece were so esteemed that they were heavily borrowed across the known world, especially by the Romans, though. If you visit Italy and Rome, you got a lot of Greek architecture borrowed there. If you even go into, um, at the time, into uh, Israel, you've got on the east side of the Mediterranean, you've got a lot of what's called Hellenism and things like that, where, where Greek architecture and uh, background is brought in. It was highly esteemed, especially though by the Romans. They're the ones who brought it around. So when Paul comes into this town and they got all this curiosity about philosophy and purpose and reason, they're really curious about this new teaching. They're like a new guys around. So let's hear what he has to say. So in verse 22, it says, so Paul standing before the council addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars has this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So, I I just envision this. Paul is standing there in in front of the Acropolis. He's got the, the Parthenon, literally the, the, this, this structure built in honor of Athena that's towering above them. And, and he uses this opportunity to share with the leadership of Athens, this council, about the true living God. And, and the Greeks had these 12 principal deities in their pantheon of gods. And, uh, and, and they're, they, they're venerated as gods. But yet, even beyond that, they had... Um, 
But, but what they had are, and within this, I'm going to back up here. They had these 12 deities within this pantheon, but they were venerated but feared beings because they were imperfect and unknowable. You don't know what mood you're going to wake up and Zeus is going to be in. You don't know what kind of situation your world is going to be in if, if uh, the gods are going to be upset and they would be prone to fits of rage. They would be prone to impetuousness. Uh, they would, they would, they were prone to lust. You read a lot of that Greek literature. There's a whole lot of that. The gods are, are, are driven by their uh, sexual desires and, and humans were kind of at the behest of whatever mood they were in. And so their best hope would be to appease them with sacrifices and by building shrines. And so they would build all these places. And, and, uh, it's interesting because a little over 200 years ago in 1820, archaeologists uncovered this altar that you're going to see on the screen behind me on the Palatine Hill of Rome. Remember, the Romans borrowed a lot of Greek, uh, religion and philosophy and architecture. And they uncovered this, uh, this altar here and inscribed on it in Latin is this. It's, 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 a, it's a shrine and it's dedicated by a Roman ruler and it says to an unknown sacred god or goddess. To an unknown sacred god or goddess. This is known as uh, the altar to the unknown god. And this is what Paul sees while he's in Athens. He sees this altar. He says, by the way, I noticed as I was walking through your nice town here that you've got an altar to an unknown god. Can I tell you about him? And so even with this vast list of deities they're venerating, there's this belief there could be more. And they don't, they don't want to offend the unknown deities. They could have accidentally omitted or dis, uh, not discovered yet. So they're, they're worshiping this unknown deity. And so they've got these altars to unknown gods. It's signaling to Paul, and he's seeing this, that despite all the Greeks' understanding, despite all their cultural achievements, despite being great thinkers and philosophers and having complex religion, they felt, they knew there has to be more. There has to be more than even what we've done. So let's, let's, let's build something and create something for what could be more. And let me tell you, people are looking for more. They may not say it overtly. They may not have one of these sitting in their house. But people are looking for something more beyond themselves. They're searching for meaning beyond what they've got. And so Paul lays it out for the council. He says this in verse 24. He says, this one you're talking about, this unknown God, he said, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. Paul says all of creation was made by God with purpose and intent. Did you catch that there? He said he made the world and everything in it. You see, the ancient Greeks believed that the universe came from a state of nothingness. They called it chaos with a capital C. That is literally the place that the universe came from was chaos. And the world as they knew it came into being by a series of chaotic and very sexual events through the struggle of primordial beings and conflicts with one another. And it kind of came through accidents, through battles and sexual things that happened and the world came into being. But if you think about how, how randomly the Greeks believed the world came into being, it's not much different than our culture's, culture's origin story of random chance and evolutionary events. Our world is saying, you know what, it's just random chance that we're all here. It might not be that, you know, primordial beings were wrestling around, but there were some tiny atoms that were just colliding somewhere in the universe. We can't talk about where those came from, but they exploded in a moment and the universe came into being. And from some primordial soup, we emerged and became conscious and had soul, you know, these, these uh, uh, creative souls and minds and all these things. And so our culture is much in the same way the Greeks were saying it all came from chaos. But let me tell you, you are not the result of millions and billions of years of random chance and chemical reactions. 
You are more than just a compound of carbon and chemicals that emerge by random chance from a primordial soup. Paul explains, your world has purpose. Your world has design. There is a singular being who doesn't live in man-made temples, who created it all with purpose and intent. And he explains that their world has been designed by this, by this intelligent being who desires something more. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. Let's look at verse 25. He says, so he doesn't live in these temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. God does not need us. God doesn't need us. The Greeks believe that God's needed their adoration. Um, they, were, they were vengeful and jealous of one another, and they needed to be placated. If you weren't worshiping me, I might get mad, and I just, I, I'm going to have an identity crisis. And so, who knows what could happen. Our worship is not what gives God his power. God will be no matter what state we're in. God is God. He is fully and completely sovereign in and of himself. But rather, it is God who gives us life and meets our needs. It is he who, who created us and not we ourselves. And so this is what Paul is laying out for them. He's flipping their world upside down. In verse 26, he says, From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. To the Greeks, the gods are far away. They're on Mount Olympus, which is unknowable. It's far away. But our God's desire is to be found by us, and he desires relationship with us individually. He's not off on some far hill watching us run around like some cosmic uh, ant farm that he started. Anybody ever have an ant farm when you're a kid and, and you watch it? My, my ant survived all of like three days. It was pretty tragic. Um, but he, he, God's not playing us like a game of The Sims. And just observing, like, let's see what those people do now. But he wants to know us. He's created us for relationship. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Look what Paul says. He says, he is not far away from any one of us. God wants to know us and to be known by us. God is ready to meet you. If you earnestly seek him, he's ready to be found. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek. He'd be real good at it if he did. I don't... You see, it wouldn't require much faith if God just hit us over the head with a God two-by-four, right? It requires us seeking God. If God were to just smite us with his power and presence, it would overwhelm our ability to choose. It would overwhelm our ability to have faith. And so God says, there's a level at which you have faith no matter what. If you believe there is a God or believe there's not a God, it requires faith. What, where your purpose is, where your source is, requires faith. So when you come to that point of decision, where do you stand? And, and he says, so if you seek me, you will find me. And C.S. Lewis said this. He says, look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, you'll find everything else. Search for Christ. He will make himself. He's not going to try to just like, oh, you never found me, sucker. He wants to be known and be found. And so Paul goes on. For in him we live and we move and we exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we should think of God. We shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. See, God made us in his likeness, as we talked about a moment before in Genesis 1.27. It says, in the image of God, he created them, right? 
We were created in the image of God. And in contrast, the Greeks had these false idols that were made according to the imagination of man. They were taken out of a, a lump of stone, out of man's own imagination. And, and the truth was they were saying, we're creating our own reality. By our own hands, we've created our gods. And, and thus our origin and our destiny and our accountability comes from our own minds, our own hands. And you might say in not so direct terms, I create my own futures. My destiny is in my own hands. We don't, we don't literally often, most of us go out and actually build our own idols. But by our own hands, we say, I am creating my own destiny. By my own hands, I'm creating my own future. By my own hands, I am dictating what reality is. And while we might not have an idol hewn from stone or crafted of gold, we've made our own God, and often it's ourselves. Continuing on in verse 30. God overlooked people's ignorance, Paul says, about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead now i as i was going back and refreshing my mind on greek mythology and things like that they didn't believe gods could die first and foremost but secondly if they were extinguished usually that meant they were torn apart into pieces and separated throughout the world and could never they were basically made powerless if a god is dead he's not coming back to life and surely he's not bringing himself back to life and paul says this god died laid his willingly laid his life down and then took it back up And he is the only God. And he invites them then to repentance. Because here is the reality. Truth matters. And the day of judgment is coming. Paul doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He cared enough about their souls to tell them the truth. He could have said, you know what? You've got a beautiful culture here. Look at the buildings. I don't want to offend anyone. Keep going down your path. But if you're just curious, I have some different perspectives. Come talk to me sometime. He spoke truth to them. Because it mattered. The reality was a day of judgment was coming and Paul himself had experienced the reality of of salvation through Christ. He himself had experienced radical life change through Jesus. And he realized it because he recognized his own righteousness would never be enough. When I was a a little guy, um, probably just going into middle school, our family took a trip to the Grand Canyon. Um, I haven't been there since, but I, I have recollections and I have Google images to look up too. And uh, I do remember it was massive. It is massive. Uh, uh, it's so massive that when you're looking at it, it looks like a painting that kind of moves a little bit almost. You're like, there's this depth to it. You, you, you can hardly see the other side. You just, how can something, how can there be a hole in the ground this big? You just like, it's just unreal and you can hardly see the other side. And the chasm that exists between one end of this, uh, this, this massive canyon to the other was like the chasm that existed between Paul's righteousness and God. It could, he could not bridge that gap on his own. Doesn't matter how much of a running start he got. Doesn't matter how much of a good person he was. He couldn't bridge that divide how, no matter how devout he was. No matter what kind of person he tried to be. No matter how many rules he followed or rules he invented. He could not earn himself to being good enough to bridge that gap to God. But Jesus came and he bridged the gap that we never could. Because Jesus was God himself. Putting on humanity. 
and flesh and our frailty, living a perfect life where none of us have lived a perfect life, dying for us, taking that sin in our place upon the cross, sacrificing himself, but not just remaining dead as a martyr, but rising again in victory over death in the grave and giving life to us. And so Jesus bridged this gap that none of us ever could. And he met Paul on that road he was traveling down when he was on his way to Damascus. Paul was on his way, living his life as he thought fit, and God intervened in his life and intervened in his life in a dramatic way. He saved him from the judgment that was coming for him. And let me tell you, God wants to meet you and change your destiny too. Don't follow your heart. Follow the one who made your heart. He's calling to you today. See, when you encounter Jesus, you're no longer who you used to be. Saul became Paul. His name changed, but the entire person of who he was was transformed. Change the direction of your life. When you encounter Jesus, you're no longer who you used to be. When you give your life to Christ, you are then a child of God. When you give your life to Jesus, you are loved by God. When you give your life to Christ, God is pleased with you. Have you ever thought about that? That God is pleased with you? I think a lot of life is lived with, I want to appease God. Oh man, I hope I don't tick him off with this time, you know, this time. Man, I really blew it that time. And we're always thinking about God, we're just waiting with those like uh, Palpatine laser fingers, just waiting to zap us. But can I tell you, when we surrender our life to Christ and become a child of God, he takes pleasure in us. He takes joy in us. He celebrates us. And, and Johnny uh, Artavanis said this, Right now God views you as righteous, not because of the righteousness you produce, but because of the righteousness you possess in Christ. It's through what Jesus did for us. And so this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. If we can take a moment and bow our heads and close our eyes, we're going to respond to Jesus as our band comes forward. Right now, this morning, if you have never given your life to Jesus, this is the time. Now is the time. And I don't want to just tell you giving your life to Jesus makes life easier. Because it doesn't necessarily. But it makes life possible. And it makes life worth living, as we saw these people talking about earlier. He gives life and purpose, but greatest of all is He gives salvation to your soul. If you have been trying to live a life that's good enough, you've been grasping at things, maybe you've got an altar to the unknown God, whatever's out there, I'm just searching for it, I'm looking, let me tell you, He is findable. He is findable. If you seek Him, you will find Him, and He is not far away, He is here now. So if you're in this room and you say, I've never given my life to Jesus, but right now, I feel Him pulling at my heart, I feel something in me that says, this is real, this is true, I I need truth, I need life in me. This morning, I want to invite you to respond. Maybe you've been far away from God, maybe you've been kind of pursuing your own things, and right now, you say, today is the day of salvation for my soul, I want to surrender it to Him. So right now, if that's you in this room, you say, Pastor Brent, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to give him my everything. Count me in, Pastor Brent. I want you to raise your hand and raise it high with me right now. Raise it up. Praise God. Church, right now, we're going to pray together. And maybe you've been considering this for a while. Maybe you're still wrestling with it. But what I invite you to do 
is pursue Jesus. He's not far away. Say, God, are you real? Is this real? Is this reality? Is this truth? Don't get lazy. Don't just live day by day saying, you know what? I'll just get my life in order when it matters. We don't know the day or the hour. So pursue Jesus today. Lord, I pray right now with everyone in this room. Lord, you came for each one of us. That none would be lost, that none would perish. So right now we surrender our lives to you. We surrender our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that we would not get caught up with our own high thinking, that the gods that we create in our own minds are maybe even deifying ourselves, making ourselves the center of our own universe. Lord, that you would be the center of it all. And Jesus, I pray for those that have been hearing the Holy Spirit speak to them in this room, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would continue to work, that it would be the pebble in their shoe all week long, that you would not let them go, that they would feel the tugging on their hearts, that Lord, this morning, starting now, they would feel the wooing of the Holy Spirit drawing them to yourself as you have come after the lost sheep. And we thank you, Jesus, for hope and life that is ours, life to the fullest, that you have given us purpose. As you told the, the people in Athens, it, Athens, it's in you that we live and we move and we breathe and we have our very being within you, Lord. And we celebrate that life today together. We celebrate the life that's been given to the fullest and we move in it today. Give us the boldness to share it, Lord. I pray for the church right now that we would have the courage to speak truth in love in the right moments that you would open doors, but that we would never let a moment get by that someone could have to possibly step into eternity without knowing truth. And that you would give us those divine moments and opportunities that eternity would be what everything's about. We thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen, amen. Church, let's stand together. We're gonna respond right now uh, in song. Oh, actually, well, before we do, we're gonna do our connection cards, Jordan. Let's do our connection. Sit back down. What are you doing standing up? Oh my goodness. Stand back up. No, I'm just kidding. Stay seated for just a moment. Let's do our connection cards right now. If you will, fill out your connection cards with me. Go to nlcchurch.com slash connect or use the Sunday links there, the QR code. You can follow the links there to connection card. Let us know what we can be praying with you about. Let us know what we can be celebrating with you. Let us know whatever's going on. If this is your first time, we want to we wanna, uh, uh, just uh, reach out and say thank you for being with us. Take just a moment to fill that out. And in just a moment, we're going to stand together and we're going to close in worship. Amen. So let's continue to fill out those connection cards if you're not quite done. But hey, if you're done with your connection card, let's stand and let's worship together. Let's sing this. Till I met 